Welcome to episode 23 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my aspiring co-host, Eddie Kramer. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Good evening, Mr. Kramer. How are you doing? Really good, Winston. It's been a uh, great two weeks since uh, we last, since the last episode. Just kind of spending the weekend thinking about where I go next as far as... Uh, my small business and uh, just basically doing some planning. Like decision number one is I think I'm ready to work on the garage and get it ready to be like a climate controlled work area or half the garage, the half that's mine and not my wife's. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I've just been playing around with that, um, modeling the, the space in Fusion 360, which uh, that's always, I mean, I'm not the first one to say it, but that's always a really good idea to kind of get a, a model set up for whatever your working space is, right? So you can kind of lay out stuff and see what room, what you have to work with. And just, you know, it's a lot easier to move sketches around and, and geometry than real, real heavy things out in the garage, right? Are you going to take it the, the extra step and uh, make a scale model of the room and like 3D print some machines to move around? It's really more, um, I was kind of looking at power layout. And because, uh, you know, one of the first things I'll have to do is, get uh, 220 single phase set up in a few places in there just to be ready. You know, if I have an electrician in to do that, I'm going to have him do everything I think I'd ever need in there. Um, yeah. And probably add another circuit, I would imagine just so you can isolate the machines better. Exactly. And I, I'm not even sure, you know, what I have to work with here um, as far as power coming in from the, from the transformer, but you know, that'll all be discovered pretty soon. Um, yeah. So I'm going to, uh, be getting, you know, compressor, which is already on my list this year to kind of, I want shop air even inside the shop or inside my kind of spare bedroom workshop. Yeah. What sort of a compressor are you looking at? Uh, it's too early to say because, um, basically I, I don't want to have to go buy another one. So I'm going to probably go a little over capacity so that it would, you know, if I end up sticking something in the garage, um, that needs air, I'll have enough capacity. You know what I'm saying? Right now, if it was just for the machines in here, I'd go with the small, um, you know, probably one of the smaller California Air. I want something that's quiet and can run on 220 single phase at most or 110 or 220, right? Yeah, I mean, most of the consumer grade stuff's going to be 110. But the other big thing to look at is duty cycle. The California Air for like, if you're only trying to pull air like through the pocket NC or something, that should be fine. But if you get a bigger machine or you're doing something where you're trying to like, I don't know, you're, you're not like uh, washing down the, the inside of an enclosure or anything. So your requirements should be pretty low on the indoor side. Yeah, I think, um, you know, anything I get bigger than a desktop machine is going to have at least MQL on it. Um, and that's that's a pretty high consumer of air. Um, so, yeah, you definitely would want something, a machine that could handle uh you know, higher flow, higher, higher pressure. Well, I don't know if the pressure's that high, but the flow's going to be much higher than I usually use. So I don't know. So, so you have the California air compressor. Are you pretty happy with it? I am, but I really don't like put it through its paces. Today I was uh, using a Harbor Freight air eraser. And I mean, that consumption is not that high. Um, it was, it was kicking on maybe every couple minutes and it was, it was more than keeping up with it, but um, even if I are doing like a, just a really small nozzle air blast on the shape Oko, it would be kicking on just a little 
too often for my comfort. So I would go uh, more than eight gallons-ish capacity and uh, CFM are, are two metrics to look at. Yeah, I think so. Uh, how about the noise? You're pretty happy with the noise level? I am super happy with the noise um, because it uses, I think, two staged um, compressors. So each one is sort of uh, taking some load off the other one. But I don't see any um, consumer-grade compressors that they have that use a different setup or larger motors. So I don't know, even with their slightly larger tank sizes, if they have um, more CFM. Yeah, I saw there was um, it's a different brand, but actually the compressor that looked the same. Um, I think it's a diaphragm compressor on the on your machine. I'm not quite sure. Like two, you have two of them, right? And then there's another um, somebody on Instagram. I can't remember who it was. They posted about their new compressor, and it was had three of those. Looked like just like the California Air type compressor, but it was three on top of a little bit larger tank. So yeah, I I, I need to do a little research before I you know pull the trigger on anything like it. Yeah, um, Cobalt put out a compressor that's supposed to be pretty quiet. And actually, Harbor Freight apparently has a line of quiet compressors too, but those are all very small capacity. My, my plan is probably to overbuy <laughs> capacity because, uh, you know, for future growth. You know, you could come up with a crazy setup and just put multiple pumps in parallel filling one tank. Honestly, I was half expecting you to say that you were shopping for a screw-type compressor. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty expensive uh, compressor, but uh, maybe someday. <laughs> Yeah, so basically just didn't really do any machining this weekend. I got a, spent most of the last 10 days working on uh, some customer parts I'm happy to finally have shipped. Uh, they, were, they were pretty challenging. I posted a little bit of it on Instagram, um, some really small drilling and um, boring, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But uh, I saw you had some interesting things going on in your shop this week. What were you doing with those, all those little round uh, spacer-looking things? Those those are me trying to compensate for the lack of a lathe and not wanting to shell out like 50 cents to a dollar per spacer from McMaster Car. So those are parts for a um, walnut and aluminum monitor stand that I came up with. It's inspired by one of the other YouTube maker builders. I think it's, it's either Crafted Workshop or uh, Four Eyes. One of them built a um, an exploded nightstand, and I'd had my idea for a, a monitor stand for a while, but seeing that aesthetic sort of cemented my idea. So what I'm doing is I'm, I'm cutting a bunch of C-shaped frames and then stacking them together um, with a gap between them. And so those spacers are to go between the aluminum and the walnut frames, um, and there's going to be a quarter-inch dowel running through all of them. And so that's going to be... Um, allow me to sort of enforce my spacing between each frame and just add a little more uh, meat to the the appearance of the aluminum in that because the quarter inch dowel just it doesn't look like much going through those frames and uh, I, I had to come up with a way to fabricate these and without a lathe the easiest way I could think of was to take my plate stock and machine out a bunch of little small donuts which it's a little challenging because these are um, three-eighths of an inch thick, 
and maybe 0 0.4, 0 0.45 inches in diameter. So that aspect ratio is really not good for adhesive work holding. It's, it's too tall, so as you, um, any sidewall contact will sort of tip it over or bump it off the tape. And so I had to um, use an onion skin that's about four or five thou thick. And I had just basically a whole sheet of these spacers that I peeled off the wasteboard at one time, which I was pretty satisfied with. Um, you could sort of just tap on it and hear it uh, ringing like a, a thin sheet of foil. Um, but it worked out really well. Cleanup was a little bit of a hassle, but actually not that bad. I just ripped each uh, spacer off the uh, foil, um, stuck them on a quarter 20 bolt that was pretty long, and uh, just stuck that bolt in a drill and just ran that um, with some, again, some sandpaper, and that actually cleaned up all the, the onion skin and brought everything to a nice, uh, smooth surface. Your description of what you're building explains a lot of my other questions about what I saw on your uh, IG page in the last few days. Yeah, so it's like a kind of a cantilevered, yeah, cantilevered design. I haven't done a stress analysis, but I suspect that it wouldn't hold up in the uh, pure C shape. My original plan, and the on the back side, there's two aluminum frames, one front, one back. For the back one, make it a complete uh, loop so that it'd be just a lot stronger. Um, my gripe with that is that it's a very inefficient use of material um, because you can't really cut anything from the inside of that loop. Although, in hindsight, I guess I could have cut my spacers from that leftover stock. But instead, I wanted to use two of those C-frames and uh, with one reversed, nest them um, like one partially inside the other. Um, so my current working idea is to have a one C-shape facing like open to the left on the front and one open to the uh, right uh, behind. So it should, like the only um, load path that would cause any substantial deflection is um, if you sort of try and crush it on the opposite corners where the, uh, the side of that C isn't. But I think visually it'll look about the same as if I had a continuous frame in the back. So I think I think my sort of weird symmetry, even though visually, like, if you look at it from the back, it might look a little weird. No one's going to do that. So I think it's an acceptable compromise. Most of the weight's from the monitor, right? That's the only heavy thing. And those are pretty light these days. Yeah, I mean, I've got a 25-inch display. It's a Dell UltraSharp. It's like... 10, 12 pounds, I want to say. It's not super light, but um, it's a static load. Like, I'm not going to be, like, adjusting the monitor all the time. So once it's stable, it's going to be good enough. And uh, I actually haven't tested. Like, I, I grab one of my aluminum frames, give it a little squeeze at the tips, and, like, it does bend a little bit, but I don't know uh, just how much extra stiffness I'll get when I add in all the other wood frames run a dowel between them. Um, I don't have an idea for the the rigidity of the combined system as a whole. So yeah, I'm thinking it would be more than adequate because you have quite a bit of quite a few of those plates, and uh, yeah, they're all yeah. kind of. I mean, if I were if I really wanted to be smart, what I would have done is not machine the the two the top and the bottom of the C parallel to each other. 
I would have um, opened them up by a couple degrees or however much such that when you put the monitor on top, they would deflect to the point where they ended up parallel. But that's that, that's too too smart, too forward thinking for me. Like I said, I was working on some some parts on the BT50 last week and uh, broke a few tools <laughs> just re- using really, really small diameter drills, uh, which I still, you know, I actually got it working. I was pretty happy with the final recipe I came up with, but there was four or five broken tools to get to that point. Um, I think you, you define small tool. Oh, these were uh, just under 30 thou, like point, or I guess 28 thou diameter drills, uh, drilling. Or that is, that yeah. is really small. Yeah, but drilling um, like five plus millimeters deep too, so several several times diameter. Um, yeah, in aluminum. <laughs> so uh, found a couple of things that helped. One was um, you know working on minimizing the runout on the tool. So I basically had an indicator set up. Um, and s- since this was on the BT50, it's the NSK CHB call it. So it's, it's like a quick release lever tool change on that spindle. So it makes it pretty easy to basically just, you know, read your run out against the tool. Or, I mean, uh, measure the run out on the tool and then, you know, basically uh, clock it in the collet until you get to the minimum run out. So I was able to go from just a little bit over two microns to well under one micron of run out. Um, and that was actually after, I don't know why I didn't do that on the first three drills. <laughs> I just didn't think about it. Um, that made a big difference on the final successful drill, uh, drill pass. And then um, speeds and feeds were the other thing. So I, I had some advice from uh, Stefan Gosventer, which also helped, uh, kind of got me more in the ballpark on speeds and feeds for that machine. Um, but what really helped <laughs> ultimately <laughs> was don't drill, use bore <laughs> with an end mill. Um, so I, yeah, I had some other holes that were a little bit, they were a little bit, uh, bigger. So, um, I have to go to millimeters now. So th- those, that 0.028 drilled hole was really 0.711 millimeters. And then there's another part for the same customer that had a closer to 0.8 millimeter, uh, blind hole on it. And, um, I wanted to go ahead and give boring a try. You know, we talked about in the last podcast uh, with the smaller tools. You know, it did the same setup I did with the drill, dialed out the the run out, and that ran really, really well. So I'm going to do um, basically bore where I can, <laughs> um, unless the drill just happens to be just the right size, like it was for this uh, 0.028 part. I pretty much had to use the drill. I don't have an end mill small enough that could reach that far. Um, doing interpolation. Were you able to? Um, sort of gauge that hole to make sure it was at the correct dimension? No, that's actually one of the gaps in my metrology right now. I don't have any uh, round gauge pins. So I'm slowly, uh, or when I remember, I go look out on eBay and, and other places, right, to see if I can get a nice complete set. Um, I may just have to bite the bullet and buy a new set somewhere. But I uh, don't have that today. And of course, that doesn't tell you everything, right? That, that gives you some confidence that the whole, at least the minimum diameter, um, doesn't exceed your pin diameter, right? Yeah. And the other big thing I've noticed is, uh, whether or not it's the same diameter all the way down. Cause sometimes if you don't do a spring pass or something, the bottom of the hole might be narrower than the uh, top. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, ideally the pin would pass through if it's a, uh, through hole, right? If it binds up in there and you're, you're, you're out of spec somewhere. 
Um, but even like on an oval shaped hole, which, uh, you know, it won't actually detect that right with that, with that strategy it could just be at the narrowest point, um, is big enough to pass your, your go pin. But, um, but yeah, so definitely, uh, happy with what I saw in my initial experiments with bore and I'll, I'm going to do some more. I'm talking about the fusion bore op, right? That's under the, I think it's under 2d. Yeah. 2d. And, um, uh, especially for small holes. So that was, that's my initial report back. It's uh, working pretty well. Um, I have other places where I can use it pretty soon. I may even try it on the lanyard beads where I'm drilling today. Uh, see if it runs a little smoother than the drilling. Drilling's working pretty good there, but um, I still occasionally get some issues with chip clear or chip clearing that might be less of an issue with the smaller tool and boring. So um, we'll see. How about you? You have any uh, break any tools this week? Um, not really, but I did uh, rejuvenate some tools. I was using the trick with lie again, and I uh, went through my inventory of all my aluminum tools, and it turns out I've got uh, four eighth inch uh, ZRN coated end mills that were all due for a cleaning, uh, a couple single flutes, and a ball end mill. So I uh, got all those like back to pretty uh, nice looking gold coatings so I mean, it's my problem is i don't know um like they're clean again which is good but i also sort of mix them up and i can't tell how much um use each one has seen because uh, I, I dropped four identical end mills in i don't know which one has been used for the longest um do you track that I try to, um, like on the case for an end mill, I'll put like used and then super used and then like really old, like use only for roughing. So it's not a really high tech method, but I have few enough tools that I, I can sort of look at it, the, the case and remember, oh, I used it for this project and that project was nine hours long. Um, but now all that's been sort of reset. Like I've lost track of what's what, um, I, I've, I know what my brand new tools are. I know what my used tools are, but I don't know just how used they are anymore. And there's also no visual indication as to their wear, unless I get like a microscope and I, I take a look at the cutting edge. Um, but I I don't know. I'm, a, I'm sort of lost now. I don't know how much I can trust these tools. Do I just run them? Like I had one tool that was marked down as a finisher and it's uh, it looks identical to everything else now. It's always a challenge. I, I've had to get disciplined over um, you know the last few years when I started getting a bigger collection of tools, you know, you probably were just like me. Start I used to have like an eighth inch and a quarter inch, <laughs> and that was it. But uh, now that I have quite a few, you know, like I mark them new once I open them. I always you know start them as finishing tools, right? And then as they wear, I use start using them for roughing. But, we should uh, we should pick up a used fiber laser so that we can uh, etch our tools. Oh yeah, well I I keep all my tools kind of in the case that the vendor ship with. And I, I put some labeling on that case. Yeah. If I actually got it mixed up, that would be a problem, but <laughs> I'm pretty disciplined about like, you know, when I take the tool out um, and I have it in the machine, the case is in a certain location, kind of my working area. I am not nearly as disciplined. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I have to be careful because I measure um, like some of those tools have a little bit of, they're a little undersized or oversized, you know, not quite on spec. Um, especially some of the 
eBay stuff I bought, so I got to be careful about what I use those for. Um, you had a little bit of drama in your shop, right? I saw some uh, aluminum with some bite marks in it. So what went wrong? Oh, yeah. So I haven't uh, published that um, in its in its full form yet. Um, I had this this mysterious happening where my uh, well, so I should preface this saying that I was doing about a two hour job in aluminum cutting out the the C frames for my monitor stand, and because it's such a long operation, I I left the garage. I, I still had a my um, Arlo camera system remotely monitoring it, so I could see what was happening. This is on the Shapeoko. On the Shapeoko. Um, in my garage and I was working on a script for my next video and then I paused to listen to what was happening in the garage and I heard nothing and I was like this is strange it shouldn't be done yet and I walk into the garage and my uh, machine is air cutting a foot to the left of where it should be Um, and my dust boot has been knocked off and there's a a chunk of aluminum that is on the corner of where the frame would be. It's, it's leftover stock, but there's nothing holding it. Uh, there should be an onion skin and some tape underneath it, but it was knocked away from the rest of the stock. And so my first thought was, oh, maybe as the cutter was coming around that corner, it kicked up that corner piece and it lost steps or something but I still didn't quite understand why the machine was a foot away from where it was supposed to be. Um, so I, I just, I thought like, Oh, I'll just put a little more tape or secure that corner a little better or leave a thicker onion skin. Um, so I cleaned everything up, slapped a new piece of material down, ran it again. And this time, so I should also say that my remote camera uh, records in 20 second intervals because um, it's not meant to be a continuous monitoring system. It's more like a security system. So it detects motion, records for 20 seconds, stops, uploads it, starts recording again. So there was a gap where I missed exactly what happened. I saw the machine cutting normally. Uh, the recording ended, and the next clip showed the machine just way off course. So I didn't quite know what transient event had transpired that caused the machine to to lose steps. When you say that it was a foot away from the part, you mean like, the spindle had moved over, right? Like to, I guess, in the X. Correct. It in the X axis. Yeah. Okay. I got you. Um, so on the second run, same thing happened, but this time the camera did catch it, and it was honestly horrifying. Um, what happened was I had a retract moved that, um, so that didn't. Uh, completely remove the end mill above the stock surface before it started rapiding again. And I, I was in a contour. These two siege frames are, are interlocked. And so it partially retracted from one, went to the start of the next cut, um, but it crashed into one of the frames. And because I have my rapid speed set to 800 inches per minute, the holding torque of the motor isn't very good. Because it's a single flute, like it, it takes a pretty big bite of the material every time there's a revolution, and so um, the the cutter just started biting in and dragging the gantry along the material um, 
during that uh, that short two second interval where the machine should have been rapiding. So your spindle was your spindle was uh, assisting the y, the uh, x axis stiffer. <laughs> yeah, it was a for for a brief half second. I had a one and a quarter horsepower um, shape oko like drivetrain wise, and uh, it threw the machine about four hundred uh, millimeters to the left. Wow in eight frames and i did the calculation that's about 0.75 g's of acceleration yeah so the cutter just grabbed it ran along the material right like a wheel like climbed cut its way over in the wrong direction um and the the impact of that i could see in my security cam footage the entire machine shaking the enclosure shaking when the uh, x-axis carriage plate smacked into the uh, the hard stop Amazingly, though, the tool was fine, and the machine, like, there's no broken V-wheels or anything, no broken belts, uh, it, it still runs just fine. And having seen that, I made corrections, I uh, added an extra thou of onion skin, I made sure to do the full retract this time, and I also reduced my rapid speed, just so I have a little more torque and I'm not running, um, like, where the steppers can't hold the machine. But those those three things, I got through the third C-frame successfully, but the more I think about this, the more it could partly be user error, but it could also be attributed to, I think, fusion. Because there have been a couple times where I've accidentally clicked the make all default button um, when you're trying to set parameters. And if I'd done that, in one of the cases where I didn't set my retract height to stock top plus whatever margin, um, that would have carried through to this point in time where I specifically set my start height below the surface. It might only be like 95% my fault and 5% fusion for bad UI design. Um, so I'm holding on to that hope as um, this crash not being entirely my fault. Using the pocket and see now as I have the you know, the pocket and C simulator, which helps spot those kind of mistakes. And I've made that exact same mistake before on my, I think it's on the Nomad. Um, The reason I didn't catch it though, is because each um, fusion, I don't think shows the linking move between different tool paths. So I saw the plunge down and the retract for this contour and um, like the lead, the lead in or the, the feed height started below the surface but I didn't see a line connecting that toolpath to the next toolpath. And because of that, I didn't see the collision. Interesting. I think you can turn that on, and at least in simulation. Um, so I know there, there's options to show and not show linking moves. But um, yeah, like the, the mistake I made when I went back and looked, it was present. And I'm talking about the fusion simulator now, right? I could see it in the fusion simulator. I just didn't catch it when I was initially looking. You know. It was, uh, it was, you know, it was more my fault because I'd set the really like kind of pretty short retract height. I was trying to speed up the operation and uh, didn't quite think about. There was one feature. It was like an internal wall, and you know, Fusion just ran the tool right through that wall because I said that was okay to do. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that that can definitely catch you by surprise. Uh, I think you used. Uh, wireframe right to look at your model it's a lot easier to spot i i used to use um 
reducing the opacity, but I've now started doing wireframe just because it's easier to to toggle that when you're in the manufacturing workspace. Exactly. Yeah, I use that all the time now. Um, the hotkeys to do that because uh, wireframe. I also use it to kind of just see where the tools, um, like when I'm using tool tilt on multi-axis, it's really helpful to see where exactly the tool is contacting. Um, so yeah, I, I'm a big. I, I would definitely recommend uh, taking a look at the. You know, if you have a tricky toolpath, take a look at it with the model switch to wire wireframe. You can see a lot, lot kind of a, a lot clear picture of where the where the tool is going to be. Yeah, that would have saved my uh, my skateboard yeah. project. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I would imagine like initially you're. Uh, I would think the linking move was visible, but it was like running through the material, so you couldn't see it, right? Because the materials. So the more I think about it, um, the way I have my toolpaths displayed is I have. Um, I select that drop down and I pick um, show toolpath for operation. So it shows one operation at a time. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So I'm glad. Uh, so you did finally get a good part on the third pass. I, I did. I'm pretty happy with it. Um, there's a, I, I sort of just guesstimated my negative stock to leave um, to bore out my holes for the quarter inch dowel that I'm running to connect the frames. There's a tiny, tiny bit of a uh, tiny bit more wiggle than I want, but it's still relatively tight. And with a little bit of epoxy or E6000, it should hold the dowel pretty well. That's good. So how are you doing with your other project, the longboard? So I I am nearing the, the finish line. Um, we got the boards anodized. I laser cut some grip tape for them. I didn't have quite enough grip tape to finish uh, all three long boards because the first time I I made a cut, uh, I didn't realize that everything was reversed. So I first cut out, um, I, I had the profiles of the grip tape inlays um, exported out of Fusion, brought them into Inkscape, um, had to send them to PDF format into Acrobat so that the vectors would be preserved when it was uh, sent to the epilogue laser that we have at Carbide3D. And so I cut out um, some of the patterns in a piece of paper. Everything seemed to work just fine. But when I put the grip tape down, I put it down facing like the the, the grippy side down um, just because the back side is paper and the top side, I don't quite know how that grit or abrasive would react to the laser. So I wanted to make sure I cut through the backing paper first. That was the most critical part. And then when I took it out of the laser and I flipped it onto the board, I realized that everything was reversed. So I had just enough grip tape to cover each of the boards, but I lost a quarter of uh, my grip tape. So one of the boards is still naked. Uh, other than that, they are all just about ready to go. So that's kind of exciting, exciting for me. Um, and I'm, I really just want to get all these uh, the videos for that project out of the way because it is eating up about three to four hundred gigabytes of space on my hard drive yeah that's a lot uh some good footage i can't wait till that the rest of that comes out and uh maker fair that's next weekend right this is we're recording on the uh 12th yep that is uh coming up fast i um uh, bought a skateboard backpack so i can carry around this longboard on my back um and just show it off whenever i want so i'm excited for people to just see it and get a little feedback on it 
Um, I'm bringing my quote-unquote personal longboard, which is the one that's got the most defects in it, um, just so I can leave the nicer ones with Carbide 3D. But even then, I think people will, will still get something out of it. It should still be kind of cool, and they can... I, I can't say admire the toolpaths, but at least um, enjoy the evidence of machining, that this was uh, definitely a hobby project and not a professional product. But I think that still brings value to the community, that like they can do something like this too, if they have 14 hours to waste. Have you uh, have you shown the anodizing or post-anodizing results yet publicly? I can't remember. I have posted one picture, um, but I haven't posted all three boards together because one of them um, I gave Crystal at Carbide 3D um, uh, creative freedom to pick whatever color she wanted and she left it up to the anodizing place because um, for the turnaround time that we wanted, um, they had one color that was already set up. So um, I won't reveal what color it is, but it came out uh, far cooler than I imagined it would. So uh, uh, that reveal will hopefully happen in the next uh, week or two. Why don't we circle back to your, your garage ambitions? So what are you what are you envisioning? Like what do you need that space for? Because unless you're getting like five more Shapeokos, I think you can you can build out like a pretty good wall of CNCs in your little indoor shop. Yeah. So like um, the machine number one that's going to move in there will be the Shapeoko. Uh, is it still? It's just it's too loud to run in the house and not have my wife. Uh, <laughs> getting a little upset <laughs> by the noise, unless I switch out spindles, right? But um, I'm going to kind of keep it stock for a little bit longer until I get used to or you know comfortable with the machine, right? And start pushing it to its limits, and then maybe I'll look at some of the upgrades that are out there. But right now, I haven't even given the the stock shape go. Um, you know, I guess enough hours to say I need to change this or change that, right? So um, I highly recommend running stock at least for like just a couple of weeks because uh, once you, you need to understand what the weaknesses of the machine are before knowing like what you should upgrade or whether or not it's worth upgrading. Uh, so push its limits in its stock form and see like, do you think a spindle would help? Or are you running into rigidity before power? Um, they're, they're just. Yeah. To be honest, the, I mean, the, the only reason I'm thinking of like, I was thinking of a spindle upgrade was the noise level, right? Um, I have no problem with the matter of fact, I actually kind of like the power available on the DeWalt, but it's loud, right? That those trim routers are just a little too loud to run in the house. If I go into the garage, it doesn't matter. Um, so I'll just, I'll stick with the DeWalt. I'm not sorry, not the DeWalt, the Makita that I have on my machine. Um, that'll kind of take care of that issue, I think. And it's cheaper than <laughs> even, even, I think, uh, well, I mean, it's not cheaper when you factor in the garage remodel right but uh, <laughs> but it's, it's cheaper just to roll it out in the garage than go you know do whatever upgrades are necessary to get a, a quieter spindle on there um and then i will say though that the ability to throw an er collet on a proper spindle is kind of nice yes yes um and the other thing is i've been looking at small lathes uh when i say small like desktop well i can talk about a couple of the models and i'll probably be looking at some other ones right now but so far just uh Looking at like the tag tag, I think that's how you say that tag. Uh, there's a they have a forty twenty nine cr which is 
CNC. You can order it CNC or CNC ready and do it yourself. And then there's a uh, Proxon PD250E, which is a German made uh, small lathe. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking at something that I might start manual, uh, start it as manual and convert it to CNC eventually, um, but really just want to buy it to get a little bit of turning experience because I don't, I've never done any lathe work before and I want to kind of get into that. It looks interesting. Um, I don't really have any serious applications for it right now other than, um, so I, sometimes when I order stock, round stock for the collet system on the uh, pocket and see it comes in oversized and I love to have the ability to kind of turn that down to be on diameter. So uh, the lathe would work for at least the smaller stock. I think both of these machines can hold um, three quarter of an inch. I think it's the largest round stock that will fit in. TAG has a 5C collet and then the Proxon has a chuck or collet system. If you know, I guess it's an ER32 collet can be retrofitted onto it. That's one thing I'll do with it. <laughs> it's like turned down. Um, Is there no way to like retrofit a four jar or something onto it? Oh no! So these all these both of these machines have um, actually the tag you can order with a collet chuck or or collet headstock, I guess, or um, like a three or four jaw. Right? I don't know if it's this if that requires a headstock swap out. The Proxon you can use both. Right? You can just swap out the the work holding. Um, like their accessories, right? So you either put the three jaw, four jaw, or the collet system on there. They all kind of fit into the taper that's on the headstock there. I know less about the the tag. Like I said, I need to look into that more. But um, but that form factor, that kind of size, is what I'm looking at for my first lathe. You know, it's not a big investment. I get to play around a little bit. What are we talking like footprint wise? Uh, it's not much bigger than it would fit on the shape echo probably, like on the on. The standard shape echo, kind of like you put your pocket and see up there, it would probably fit. That's that's kind of cute. Yeah, it's a little maybe a little longer than that, but it's, they're fairly small. Um, but I, I expect to have to, you know, use oil coolant with those occasionally or some sort of coolant. So that's definitely not going to go in the house. And they're not enclosed either, right? They have a pan, a chip pan, and you know, kind of a piece of uh, polycarbonate to protect you in case the the stock gets thrown out of the chuck. But um, they're not really. I wouldn't consider them indoor friendly as far as chip management and oil and coolant and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, so that's, you know, first thing I want to do is kind of get air conditioning in the garage and get a bench in there and, and get that set up in there and start playing around with it. I actually had, um, one of our DFX listeners offered me a pretty good deal on the, on a used, slightly used, tag. actually, I think it was new, but it was, he owned it, right? So, uh, tag 4029, it actually passed on it, but cause I just didn't really know enough about that kind of smaller class of lathe at the time. And, but ever since then, he's kind of prompted me to, uh, I mean, his, his reaching out has kind of prompted me to start looking at lathes and, uh, some, you know, just now in the research phase, I kind of have a budget in mind. It's not going to spend a lot on the first one. Cause like I said, it's more just a playing around with and, and like teaching <laughs> or learning lathe. So, uh, and then we'll see where we go from there. If I, if I like it, right. If I like turning and right now I don't really have a business case for it. So it's really more on the hobby side that I'm going to be playing around with one of these at first. Yeah. Do you have any like customers you think would benefit from your capability yeah. if you added a layer? Yeah, I definitely have parts. I mean, you've seen what I run on the pocket and see some of those parts would definitely have been better on a lathe. <laughs> 
um, at least the CNC lathe, right? Um, probably would have come out just a little more, uh, you know, a little bit better surface finish, kind of turning it instead of uh, milling it. But, um, but yeah, no, I don't expect to use it for the business, at least not initially. You know, if I get comfortable with it, yeah, there might be some applications, right, where I can use it and uh, for some of the third-party work I do. But I'm not committing to anything, right? You know, like I said, I don't know first thing about actually turning parts. So I got to go just like with the CNC machine. I got to go uh, CNC mill. I got to kind of go through that learning process. And um, it took me like probably about a year to eighteen months before I was comfortable on the C on the CNC mill, comfortable enough to take on commercial any kind of commercial work. So uh, I expect you know similar or hopefully shorter actually because you know a lot of the concepts are the same, right? Feeds and speeds and stuff like that. Um, but anyway, I just plan on entertaining myself with it for a little while. That's fair. Yeah. And then, you know, like I said, if I buy it, um, depending on what I get, it may come manual or may, I may find one that's already CNC converted. Uh, but if it's manual, then I'll have the, you know, the conversion process be fun little project too. I can kind of spend some time on once I'm done with, you know, bored with the manual side. <laughs> so, uh, that'll be fun. We'll see. So I don't know how soon it, you know, the garage is, like I said, it's going to have to kind of, all that work's going to have to be done first before I can, um, especially this time of year, it's just way too hot in there and it's only going to get worse through next February. <laughs> so, yeah. So is this something you see like after the summer maybe, or no. Like so, well, I mean, I'm actually, um, going to be calling our contractor this week to start getting the ball rolling. I've talked to him in the past about it when he was here doing some other work. So uh, I'm going to say, hey, you know, that thing we talked about last time about doing the, doing the garage, I'm ready to kind of have a serious talk about it and get the ball rolling. And you know how the contractors are, you know, nothing's fast. So I'll be at the mercy of whatever pace he can handle. And this is kind of like house building season here. So, um, yeah, so I don't know how available he'll be for small job you know it's a fairly small job compared to what they're probably spending their day on still exciting though hopefully later this summer i'll have uh i'll have a garage ready for bigger stuff um or, or for machines right and humanly habitable <laughs> for more than five minutes so uh we'll see we'll see where that goes i don't plan on changing anything other than rolling the shape i go out into the garage um everything else that's in my indoor shop is going to stay the same right I'll get a little bit of more room in here with that machine out of here. Um, so I might set up one more bench or one more workbench and spread some of the stuff out a little bit. I'm getting a little crowded on the, uh, on my long table in here. Cause I have, you know, the two Bantam tools and the nomad and the one of the pocket and C's. So I probably, uh, get the opportunity to rearrange that a little bit on the inside. If I have, uh, some overflow space in the garage. Have you figured out how you would run uh, a compressed airline from the garage to the room? Yeah. So the nice thing is, uh, my shop, my spare bedroom workshop shares a common wall with the garage. Uh, so if I have a compressor in there, um, I already kind of have a spot where I know that it's safe to kind of run a through wall, uh, set of air fittings and kind of on both sides, um, without hitting any you know vital plumbing or electrical that's, that's in the house. So one of the nice things about this house, you know, we, we were the first occupants. So when it was still at the before they had the drywall up, I took a lot of pictures of where all the wiring and plumbing and all that kind of stuff is. So I can go back and look at those and say, okay, here's a safe spot to run a hole, you know, through two walls. 
um, it, it is a garage, so there's a firewall right between there and the house. I need to kind of do a little bit of research and see what's safe to penetrate that wall. I know there's some, there's some like um, building code I got to worry about, and I know there's like uh, kind of special materials and sealers that you're supposed to use when you're penetrating the firewall. Um, but anyway, I'll, my contractor guy will know all that stuff. So uh, yeah, my plan is to have yeah, air available inside the workshop in addition to the garage. I was also thinking about like a big shop back out there and then just run the vacuum line into the shop because that's complaint number two that I get from my wife. <laughs> Other than the shape echo is the uh, you know, vacuum cleaner, right? That's probably the loudest thing I run in the shop. The machines aren't so bad, but when I'm cleaning up, that's, you know, vacuum. I have a pretty small vacuum cleaner, but it's not quiet like yours. It's not like a... Yeah, so I will I will say that the, the fine vacuum is pretty solid on noise but we have a festool at work and that one because it has a variable um power dial uh you can actually run that at a much lower suction and that is like really quiet um at full power they're about the same but because it's variable um for your application if you're just trying to like vacuum out like the bantam tools machine like that might actually be a pretty good solution for you. Yeah, that's what. Um, yeah, that's the thing. The small machines work best with smaller. I can't remember what diameter. Like I have this a small shop vac, like a portable, and it's probably what is it? Two inch tubing. You know, it's not the. It's not. I have a bigger shop vac that has the three or four inch diameter, like you'd use to clean out your car, right? Um, when you're washing it. So that's that hose and the fittings are all kind of w- way too big to fit in most of my machines. I can't really get into the little nooks and crannies. If I put it, if I put a tool or an attachment on the end that's small enough, um, it puts way too much load on that big motor. So I think, you know, I'll continue to have like a small portable cleanup back in, but I think I need to switch it out for a quieter one. Like you said, like a Festool, um, and then maybe use a bigger one out in the garage for something like the shape Oko. Something makes a big mess, right? It's good to have the big pull-size shop vac to clean that up. Yeah, my my gripe with the shop vac is that I don't believe they filter the incoming air that cools the motor. So unless you have a dust boot on everything or you have a, a relatively clean environment, um, I feel like you get a little more motor wear or like brush erosion or something. Um, so the, my fine has been running a lot of hours and I have zero concerns about it overheating or just dying in any way. Um, that one does filter the incoming. Yeah. I think that type, you know, the dust collectors for tools, right? Like ones, the vacuums that are designed for that are designed for closer to a hundred percent duty cycle compared to your generic shop vac, right? Yeah. The shop vac, you almost have to treat as a consumable. Yeah, exactly. So um, I think I probably will make an investment, uh, at least for the inside shop, in a quieter, higher, you know, higher quality vacuum. Because that, that's when you think about tools you use every day, that one gets used all the time. <laughs> and yep, I think you'll be a lot happier um, with a much better vacuum. Exactly, and you know, getting it quieter would be uh, it'd be mutually appreciated <laughs> by everyone in the house, right? So that's yeah, that's probably the next thing on my my to buy list besides a lathe is uh you know some quieter cleanup equipment yeah remind me to uh throw you an amazon affiliate link okay yeah and uh like i said i'm also uh looking to get some some uh metrology gear to measure small holes 
because uh, I seem to be doing a lot of those lately. So how about you? Uh, got anything other than, I guess you're just kind of in last minute mode to get ready for Maker Fair. I'm actually like pretty okay about that. Um, I've got plenty of stickers, longboards done. Right now, I'm just sort of in an awkward phase where my my video queue is long enough that I, I kind of feel guilty not working on videos. But at the same time, I really want to get started on a new project. And the monitor stand is helping. But right now I'm in the phase where it's like I just put polyurethane on the frames, the wooden ones. So like I can't touch those for 24 hours. And I'm uh, doing some, some finishing, uh, poor man's bead blasting of the aluminum frames, which is also pretty slow. But there's like nothing keeping the machine busy. Um, all my SD cards are full. So I am... I'm sort of in an awkward position between projects. So I'll feel better once the longboard video series is completely done and I can move that to cold storage. Um, but in the meantime, I'm mostly just uh, grinding through current projects, doing a little bit of hand finishing and uh, dreaming of the next project. Yeah, you're going to come back from Make Your Fair all, you know, with a head full of ideas anyway. So <laughs> I have a feeling your queue, your queue will expand. Not just from Maker Fair. I'm going to have to spend 10 hours in a car, probably more with Chris. So um, I, I can only imagine the ideas will bounce around. Because that's Bay Area. I forgot. I don't know why. I keep thinking it's in LA, but yeah. Okay, that should be fun. Nope, we're, we're doing the drive up. So Let's uh, let's have Chris on the show when y'all get back and kind of do a, uh, have both of you guys recap what you guys saw up there. I think I'd enjoy that. Yeah. You got to live vicariously through us, or you could join us. There, there's still time. Yeah, I'll actually, I'll be doing some traveling during that time too. But um, nothing as fun as Maker Fair. <laughs> so, okay, well, I, uh, I'm trying to think what else I got going on this week. Actually, so I'm getting ready to start uh, some more commercial work once I get back from my have a, a short trip this week, and then when I get back, are you? Ever not starting commercial work? <laughs> I keep wanting to block a month out to go just do my personal projects. Um, I'm, I'm kind of getting them, you know, shoved in here and there. I get a few, like I, I shipped the parts, uh, for my last customer, um, Tuesday or Wednesday. And then I worked a little bit more on the lanyard beads. Um, so one of the things I'm working on right now is there's, I have a little bit of run out on the ER 40 call it, uh, it, which gets, you know, kind of magnified when I stick something in like the, the, straight shank ER25 tool post, right? This is going to kind of make it a little worse. So I was trying to experiment with dialing that out. Um, kind of the same strategy I use with the tool, just rotating and looking, see if there's a better location in the collet, like if you clock it, um, that minimizes the run out. So I had a little bit of success with that, but that did interrupt my kind of bead, uh, bead project. So I hope to pick that up, uh, like I have a couple of days once I get back before I have to start working on this uh, watch parts project. It's kind of my next commercial thing for another client, a new client. And we'll see where we get on that. And that's probably going to take the rest of the month to finish those parts. And then how small are we talking about? Yeah. Fortunately, they're not movement parts. It's the outer case. Okay, so you're not going to have to buy a current anytime <laughs> no, soon. This is, this is case and uh, dial related machining so um so some prototypes for a customer that's i think ultimately gonna i don't know how they're gonna have these made in the end but um i think they're just trying to 
get an idea of how it kind of all comes together. So I'll be doing some of that for them. It's interesting shape. I won't be able to show it. I think that's pretty much it. Um, waiting for humming drones. Uh, that's like my very first client that I had last year. Um, I did some Delwyn work, prototype work for them for uh, this like small drone that flies like uh, with it, like wing motion, like an insect. Like, I think dragonfly. Um, so they've been working on that. I hadn't been able to talk about it forever, <laughs> but now they're uh, they're not Kickstarter. What's the other one? Indiegogo campaign starts? I think next this coming Wednesday. So, um, I, I can't wait for that to kind of, uh, hit the market. I'm going to get one cause I want to, just cause I have a little bit of an attachment to it. Having that been my first client and, um, it's kind of a crazy idea. So, <laughs> uh, looking forward to, to that this week. Uh, that's about it. Definitely, uh, throw that in the show notes. Um, once it gets up. Yeah, well, I will. Yeah. I didn't actually take a lot of footage when I did that part. But anyway, it's kind of neat. It's a just an interesting idea, I guess. I've seen those in movies. I don't know if I've ever seen one in real life that that flies. You know, that wasn't a prop that flies with that kind of motion, so or that kind of a flight mechanism, right? So anyway, yeah, I'll put the I'll put it in the show notes. They have some video up. Uh, I think there's more coming this week as they kind of count down to the kickoff. They'll hopefully have some more flight footage. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff about the development of it out there over the years, but, uh, I'm, I'm really want to see like the final commercial product flying. Uh, so I think that's coming this week. I'll have some footage on that. What about you? I guess, uh, anything else you want to cover before we wrap it up? Not really. Like most of my, most of my projects are still like pretty far down, uh, the roadmap. Uh, the one thing I'm going to be working on, um, hopefully this month is a, um, a camera mount for the shape Oko because at a carbide 3d, we've got multiple shape Oko's laying around and I actually want to try and use one as a camera slider. I recently purchased a DJI Osmo pocket, like the little tiny gimbal camera. And so I want to throw one in a shape Oko, have that face another shape Oko and do a poor man's, uh, motion control time-lapse. So that that's just going to be one of my side projects kind of closes the loop because I think your first exposure to the S3 was when you went to go visit Ed Ford and I can't remember what you call the the camera rail that you brought. <laughs> Do you remember what I'm talking about to go shoot the promo video? Yep. Yep. The thing that I told people I would refine the design and publish plans for and I haven't done so for the past four years. Well, using a, yeah, that using a CNC controlled camera gantry is pretty good refinement of that original design yeah and like just because i have access to the the carbide motion board that's three axes right there in a language i know how to control yeah that's pretty cool um oh yeah i know i was gonna ask so at maker fair are you is carbide gonna have a presence there official like a booth we are not going to have an official presence there um i don't even know if any of our machines are going to be there so but I'll be there. A couple other Carbide 3D employees will be there. So you can find us. I'm sure we'll have stickers. Yeah. But I mean, you're going to be there as a participant, right? I, I'm going uh, not quite incognito, but I'm I'm cruising under the radar. Yeah. Actually, I used the wrong word. You're going as, you're going as an individual, not as a... Not as a Correct. Uh, I am representing my own self-interest. Yeah. 
Well, cool. Well, uh, it should be they should be easy to spot if you guys are looking for Winston at uh, make up here. He'll be the guy with the the aluminum longboard on his back, <laughs> or or riding it, I guess potentially. Yeah, then you'll have to catch me. Well, good. I hope you have a good trip, and looking forward to getting your recap. Thanks, Eddie. All right. Well, I think I'll say good night, Winston, and uh, have a safe trip. Thanks very much. Have a good night, Eddie. You too. Good night.